Hey, everybody, you've heard me talk about your personal development plan on my podcast. Well, we've received such positive feedback about the plan that we've decided to actually make it an official resource out of it. We've created a weekly leadership plan you can have delivered to your inbox each week. The weekly leadership plan is a simple way you can develop yourself as a leader and put the practical skills we talk about on the podcast into practice. So each week, you'll get tips that will help you stay focused on the right things as a leader. To get the weekly leadership plan, just go to howleaderslead.com slash plan and sign up. That's howleaderslead.com slash plan. Welcome to How Leaders Lead, where every week you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I break down the key learnings so that by the end of the episode, you'll have something simple you can apply as you develop into a better leader. That's what this podcast is all about. Today's guest is Bill Aquavella, one of the most renowned art dealers in the world and head of Aquavella Galleries. In the art business, reputation is everything. Bill has sold hundreds of millions of dollars worth of art and his customers, people like Mick Jagger, Steve Wynn, and Henry Ford II, they have absolute trust in what they're buying from. They're confident spending money with Bill like they do because of the confidence they have in him. So the question for all of us is, how do we build up our reputations as leaders where people will trust us in the big moments? Well, this is an episode chock full of stories from some of Bill's biggest deals. We can learn to build up trust by hearing how he built his up. It's true for Bill and it's true for leaders. Reputation is everything. This is one of my favorite all-time interviews and I can't wait for you to listen in. Here's my conversation with my good friend and soon to be yours, Bill Aquavella. I always like to start out, Bill, at the beginning. Uh, tell us about your upbringing. Well, you know, I, I'm an only child. My father came over from Naples, Italy in 1919. I was born in New York. And during the war, we moved out. My father said, we're going to move the country. We moved to Jamaica, Queens. <laughs> but for him, <laughs> it was a country in those days. So I went to Catholic school out there. And when I was about... Uh, an eighth grader, he pulled me out and he sent me away to school uh, up to a Westminster school in Simsbury, Connecticut. So he was very big on me getting an education, as you might think, and making sure I graduated from college. You know, my father was always able to live well, but never have any money, kind of. You know, he was one of these guys, you know, I don't care if I'm not a millionaire, I just want to live like one. And he was very much along those lines and he could do it. How much did that really affect you and the way how you thought about your future and the way how you've lived your life? It affected me a lot because I remember my father always being short of cash. I saw the pain in that, and yet no, he would never let on that, to anyone else that he was short. So anyway, it goes on. I, I do ROTC in college. I go in the Army for six months, you know, off this training course, that kind of thing. Uh, and then I, I didn't have a job when I got out of the... Uh, army and my father said well you come to the gallery until uh, you get a job and my father was an old master dealer specialized in italian renaissance italian baroque paintings and in those days david there were more paintings than buyers it's nothing like you read about today you know there, there was no one who was going to get there first to get the painting it was where you were going to find the client that would like to buy it so 
it was very hard to make money in that business at that time. Did you always have an inkling that you would uh, get into the family business? I had no business? idea I was going to do it. I, I, it was a land, I did major in art history in college, and I did paint a little bit. Uh, I took a studio art course, but that was not what I wanted to do. You know, can you give us just a real quick and basic primer on, on the key success factors in the, the art gallery business? Well, you know, there, there are two kind of business models in the art business. One is a primary dealer, and what, what that is, is you represent artists, and you basically, in today's world, you try to have a lot of locations so you can entice artists by, to come with you because you can show them in different locations. And then the second part is, is the deal is a deal in secondary market, which I do. I just inventory paintings, I buy and sell, and, and also broker paintings, but I only have one location, and I've always believed in art, so I've always reinvested my own money in paintings. I never expanded in real estate within different cities. But what I used to do to help me, I made arrangements with certain dealers around the world that we were friends, that we became friends. And so, you know, if I wanted to do something in, in London, I had a friend who had a gallery there and we'd share and we'd do it there. If I wanted to do it in Germany, I had the same. I had the same in Paris, I had the same in Italy. I had the same in Switzerland. And so that I had in the early days a way to be in all those countries if I wanted. I just had to have a partner which I shared the profits with for that particular picture that we were working on or two or three pictures. Now I understand as you mentioned earlier, your dad uh, specialized in works of the Italian Renaissance and you said that was a pretty tough market. How did you go about expanding your opportunity when you really got involved in the gallery? We start, I started with my father in 1960, the end of 1960. And, you know, I just couldn't sell those things. So I said to him, listen, Pop, I can't sell these things. I don't know who buys Italian resin or, or Italian Baroque pictures. He says, well, what do you think you can sell? I said, well, I don't know. He said, well, try to buy what you can sell. So I went to Paris and I bought a painting. And, you know, the numbers were a lot different there, but you know, I bought a painting for $8,000. And I sold it for 12. And I said, well, you know, what the hell? We, we, you know, we might do something out of this. <laughs> and so I started. And then we, we started going. And we incorporated in 1963 for $93,000. That was our total business, the worth of our business. My father, being Italian, right after the war, bought a house in Italy in a place called San Remo. It's about a half hour from Monte Carlo on the Italian Riviera there. You know, a terrific house. And he paid, at that time, was a million lira, which was $1,500. Yeah. He, he bought it in 1946. Wow. So every year we used to go there, and he closed the gallery, and we'd go. So one year we'd go, and we stopped in Paris, and he would go looking for these old master paintings. And I met a young dealer at the time that was in Paris my age, and he said, you know, the uh, Bonar estate has been in the courts for 15 years because the nieces of Madame Bonar, <laughs> she contested the will, and they've now settled, and they got half the estate, and they want to sell some of the pictures, but they're very expensive, and all the dealers say they're too expensive and very difficult to deal with. So, of course, I told my father that, and he immediately said, we go, we're going to go see him. We want to go. So we go to the Chase Manhattan Bank, big vault there, big room, and he started pulling out these Bonards. Pierre Bonard is a, you know, a post-impressionist painter. And for those times, very valuable. 
we incorporated for $93,000. So you know, there's not a lot of capital behind us. My father sees these paintings. So we pick out 17 paintings and he says, I'll buy the 17 paintings. And the price was $1 million. He says, but you got to lend me 13 others so I can have a show in New York and I'll pay you in December after the show's over. And I was thinking to myself, this is unbelievable. I mean, we have maybe $100,000 in the bank. Okay, so they sign the papers and we take them. Okay, but we now owe a million dollars and we flying down to San Remo and I say to him, you know, no one's doing color catalogs here. Why don't we at least do a color catalog? This guy's a colorist, that's what he's known for. So we do, we print an all color catalog. We print it in Italy because it was cheaper and uh, I come back to New York and I have them there and I pick out 10 names not knowing any of them, okay? I, but I picked out the richest people I could get on, uh, that collected art. And on that list were Norton Simon, David Rockefeller, uh, Paul Mellon. And I come back to New York and I send a letter out and I say, listen, we're having an exhibition of these. They're all for sale from the estate and I know you're interested in art and I thought I'd give you the first opportunity, should you be interested, to see the pictures first. I sent 10 letters out and 10 catalogs. And the exhibition hadn't even opened yet. And the door opens one day. I'm sitting in the gallery. And in comes says, I'm Mr. Mellon. Yes, sir. <laughs> Come right in. He said, I got your letter. I'd like to see the bone arm. The first picture I showed him, he said, I like that. I'd like to buy that. It was $135,000. And now I'm saying, you know, do I show him any more? I don't want to lose this deal. Yeah, this is uh, unbelievable. <laughs> He said, I show him the rest and he buys $1 million. You're on a roll. <laughs> $1 million of those pictures on that one day he came in. And that got us over the hill. And out of that show, we made like $300,000 at that time. You know, it, got, it really got us started. Do you have any other stories, a couple other stories about how you, big deals? So like the, the following year, I went to London to, and I walk in this dealer and there's a Fontaine Latour in the Floor. That's, he's a, a still life painter. A printing company's just been sold, and they say that the previous uh, CEO had bought these Fontana tours with company money. So I have 15 of them that he wants to sell. So I did the same thing my father did. I said, okay, I'll buy all 15. And I brought them back, and I uh, borrowed a few others from collectors, and I sold out the whole show. In fact, there was a decorator in town called McMillan, and they bought the catalog. And they would frame the color photographs and they would put it on people's tables as little decorations. And so all, <laughs> and all our catalogs. Sold so we had a lot of fun with it. It was, it was, it was a great start. You know, do you today, Bill, do you, do you try to find emerging artists or do you focus on sourcing work from already famous artists? No, we just stay pretty much with the masters in all fields. We have expanded a little bit. We have represented one or two people. Our biggest artist that we represented was uh, Lucian Freud. L I mean, Lucian Freud was a well-established English artist, friend of Bacon's. You know, I, he was difficult. He did a lot of male nudes, you know, and, and female nudes. And so the subjects were sometimes a little difficult. So people in London, the dealers were a little hesitant when he had broken up with his previous dealer. Long story short, I go over there. He wants to have lunch with me. I have lunch with him. I had met him a couple of times at a friend's house, and he puts up some pictures 
And as a studio, I go see them, they were unbelievable. I mean, they were big size paintings of a performance artist called Lee Bowery. And he did four pictures of this huge guy, all naked. And they sound difficult. They were difficult, but they were still great art. And so I told him, I'll buy those three pictures from you and I'll buy everything you make for two years. Now, this was 1992. So by then we had the wherewithal to do that. So I said, you know, I'll buy everything you make for two years. You, you price it and I'll sell it. But I'll tell you, I started selling the pictures at uh, $600,000. And the first one, when it finally got up there, first one came up at auction for $30 million. This was This was about 10 years later, 15 years later. Now the record price at auction is, uh, I think, $57 million. So this was really sort of a gutsy move. You had to step out and really support an artist that other people, you kind, of, you kind of scared them off. You know, how do you, Bill, how do you determine what's really good? And how do you develop an eye and expertise to judge works like that to say, hey, it's worth the risk? For some reason, I kind of had an eye and a feeling for it. I don't think it's anything that I studied for. I think I just kind of had that knack. And, you know, I'm not scared of risk. And my father was a gambler. I mean, that's why why I later found out that's why we pretty much were always tapped out. He had a great reputation, you know. I mean, one of the things he told me when I started working, he said, look, we got only one thing. That's our reputation. He said, so you can't fool with that. You've got to buy them and do the best you can. And, and, you know, it's all relationships in our business now. You meet people that want to buy art and collect. They commit a lot of money. And so they have to trust the dealer. And they don't know that much all the time. So, you know, it's easy for a dealer to take advantage of somebody. You know, that's one thing you don't want to do. And I don't go for one-time hit. I mean, you want to develop a client and a dealer. And so we were lucky we did that. You sold your paintings to very sophisticated collectors. You mentioned Rockefeller. I know Henry Ford II was one of your clients. What's the key to selling to such sophisticated buyers? Well, for one thing, if you have the art, it's a door opener, if they're interested in really good art. And then you have to have a reputation that you're an honest person. But, I mean, it sounds crazy, but it's a big part of our business. You've got to be able to trust people if you're a collector, like who you're buying from. The business has changed a lot now because the auction houses came in and the auction houses were always a, a wholesale market. That's where dealers went to buy things, amongst other places. But once Alfred Talbot bought Sotheby's, he started changing it into a retail business. Because what he did, he would allow people to take the paintings before the auction to their houses to see if it fit. He would make sure the paintings were cleaned. He would reframe them. Talbot was a good friend of mine. In fact, when he bought the business, he wanted to buy my business, wanted me to run Sotheby's for him. And I didn't particularly want to work for him, although he's a good friend of mine. So I just stayed with my business. But uh, he was really the one who got the art market changed. And now Christie's and Sotheby's are, are tremendous forces in our market. You know, let's go back to a deal that I know that you made that really, it was with Sotheby's. It really disrupted the art world at the time. And I think you you did this in 1990. Tell us about this deal where you really were the first to really co-op yeah. with someone like Sotheby's. Well, it's a funny story. I, You know, at that time, I had made some investments with people outside the business, outside the art business. I mean, I, I had invested with Julian Robinson and with Dan Druckenmiller. And I was watching how they were doing these leveraged buyouts, you know, and 
So there was a big French dealer called the son of Henri Matisse. His name was Pierre Matisse. He had a gallery in New York, and he represented very good artists. He had Giacometti and Miro and Chagall and Tanguy, and I could go on and on. I mean, really good, good painters. And when he died, in those days, you had to go subchapter S if you're going to be able to really handle if someone dies in the family. Otherwise, there's double taxation. And there was, anyway, there was. So I decided, why not just buy the gallery from the estate, you know? So then I'll have to pay the taxes. And, and, they, and they were getting hit like $12 million a month. So it was, they were anxious to do something. So there were a few other people also interested at the time. But there were 4,700 items in the deal, okay? So I couldn't handle that in terms of, I couldn't keep track of it all. In my gallery, I have, you know, I have 20, 25 people working for me. In those days, I had maybe 20, maybe 15, you know, I just couldn't. So I went to Sotheby's and I said, listen, I got a deal. You want to make a deal? And uh, he, Taubman and his CEO said, sure. So I said, okay, I'll do it on one deal. You got to put up all the money. And I got to be in charge of the deal because I didn't want them to do it. They, you know, they're, they're good, but they're not that good. There's too much money. So anyway, they agreed and they, they issued some commercial paper. We, we ended up buying the whole thing for $153 million. And it was the first time a dealer in the art auction got together. And that really caused a stir. All the dealers were screaming at me, you know, why are you going? They're our enemy kind of thing. I said, you're wrong. If we don't get with them, we're going to be alone. That went very well. I mean, we had to sell $300 million worth to break even. And I sold $300 million in 18 months. Wow. How do you go about moving that much inventory that fast? And what kind of skin in the game did you have in that deal? I had $15 million. That was that. But that doesn't matter. I couldn't lose. I mean, if I lost, it was more than my skin, the 15 million. I mean, you're out, out of a lot of trouble there. But anyway, what happened, how do you sell all that, right? It's a big problem. So what I did, I made packages up. I mean, I had 550 Miro's in there, okay? So I made packages of Miro's. I made packages of Chagall's, of everything. So no one could buy one picture. They had to buy the whole package. Now, this was a time when the Japanese had been buying a lot, and I was doing a lot of business in Japan. The Sotheby's had an incorporation in, in Nevada, and we, we did this deal in Nevada. I went out to Nevada. I got a warehouse out there where we could keep all the stuff. And then I found a very nice gallery about one block away from the warehouse. You know? So I went in there, and there was this nice couple that owned it. And I said, I got an idea for you. You want to listen to a deal I have? So they said, sure. So I said, how about we work, we, we buy you for two years or three years. You know, we'll, we'll cover all your expenses. We'll do everything for two or three years. I want to use them to display the work. I told, you know, so what I did, these Japanese would come over to New York. I charter a Gulfstream. I get them on the Gulfstream. And on the Gulfstream, I had these albums which had the packages in it, and they'd go through these out and pick out if they, what packages they wanted. They, they picked out a package, and I would call ahead. They'd get it out of the warehouse, and they'd hang the whole gallery with that package. So we'd get out there, and then they'd see the whole thing. And on the way back, we, you know, I, I started selling these packages to the Japanese. It was great. You're known for being an incredible salesperson. You know, what do you think really makes a great salesperson? And what advice would you give people on how to really get good at selling? 
That's a difficult question. I mean, uh, they're all different kinds of salespeople, as you know. I mean, everybody has their own technique. You know, you got to have something that you think people want to buy, and you got to believe in the thing you're selling. It's, if someone gives you something you don't believe in, it's pretty hard to sell. I can't sell something I don't believe in. And so you just have to, if you believe in something, you have to have a reason you believe in it, and you use that to convince the other guy that he should have it. Yeah. Can you tell us a story about your most challenging private sale? Steve Wynn, who is a big client of mine and a friend. I mean, I sold a picture for him of Picasso. I sold it for $139 million. I mean, I, this is all public knowledge, the numbers. So I'm not talking out of school. And uh, the money was coming in the next day. And I, I'm at home, and I get a call after dinner. And it's Steve, and he says, Bill, I've just put my elbow through the painting. I said, come on, Steve. You know, this is not funny. The money's coming tomorrow. Sometimes I thought he'd pull him a joke or something. So, no, it's true. And um, I said, oh, my God, I can't believe it. So, of course, the deal fell through. And I restored the picture for him. Had it restored. Uh, He collected his insurance. It was an incredible accident. He's vision impaired, and now he's almost totally blind. So that was that, and he took the picture back. And then two years later, I resold it for $155 million for him. <laughs> I was going to ask you how you got over the loss of closing a deal like that. It didn't take you too long. <laughs> well, it took maybe, maybe it was three years. I don't remember if it was two or three yeah. years. But how did you mentally work through that? I mean, that had to be a huge disappointment. Well, I tell you, in the art business, when you're dealing in those things, you, you know, you win some and lose some all the time. You kind of get used to it. I'm pretty hardened on some of that stuff. Like you can't let that get you down. In the early days, it would get you down big time. So the time and grade help you deal with those yeah, kinds abso- of things? Absolutely. And success, I imagine. Well, it's just gonna, it's gonna happen sometimes, but not that way, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. I heard about a painting that you were going to sell to Mick Jagger that also kind of fell through the, the cracks. Can you tell us a little bit about that one? Oh, that's a, this was a Lucian Freud painting. And Mick had married uh, Jerry Hall. I don't know if he married her, but he had a baby with her. And uh, Lucian Freud was doing a composition, and it had a man on a couch reading a book, had a dog under the couch, and in the midground it had Jerry Hall nursing her baby, and then behind was an open window to a, a street in London. And it was a big picture, maybe 88 inches high, and about uh, 40 inches wide, I think. And so, you know, he was a very slow painter. And a painting like that would take maybe two years to do. I mean, where a a person would sit, maybe once or twice a month for him, but, you know, for many, many months. And then Mick Jagger wanted to buy the picture. He kept calling me up. Look, I want to buy the picture. I said, Mick, I don't even have a price on it because it's not finished yet. And he was bugging me. So... I call up Lucian Freud. I said, listen, Lucian, you know, Mick wants to buy this picture. You know, let's, let's put a price on it and sell it to him. So we do. We put a price on it. We sell it to him. And, of course, there's more to be done. So more time go by. And I'm at home one time in New York. I get a call from Freud. And he says, Bill, I want you to be the first to know the pictures had a sex change. I said, well, what are you talking about? And he said, well, Jerry Hall didn't show up for two sittings. So I changed her head into a man. I put David Dawson, which was his studio assistant, 
I put his head on her body. <laughs> I said, okay. Well, then Jagger calls up and says, God, damn, you know, what, what, what is this? What's going on? What can we do? This is ridiculous. You've been sitting there for four months. I said, Mick, there's nothing I can do. Obviously, you don't have to buy the picture, but there's nothing I can do. Because Freud was like that. I mean, he was, you couldn't tell Freud what to do. That was an embarrassing situation. But anyway, I had to buy the picture from Lucian, and I thought, I'll never sell this picture. And you know what? The first person I showed it to when it arrived in New York bought the picture. <laughs> what was it that was the clincher for him? The story behind it? Well, actually, no, that was not the clincher, but it helped. Uh, it was a fun story, and uh, they enjoyed that, that, the fact that they had turned Jerry's head into a male. How, how often do you find that kind of emotion, those little storylines, the things that personalize a picture? How often does that really prove to be the thing that really gets someone to want to invest in a major painting? It usually isn't the major thing, but it doesn't hurt. A lot of times, I mean, obviously people buy those pictures because of the quality of the painting and the work of the artist. But a little story, a little romance like that, you know, it always helps. Bill, I know you've added your daughter Eleanor and sons Nicholas and Alexander to the business. What's the biggest challenge running a successful family business? And what advice can you give to others? You know, we have a lot of people who listen in that are part of family businesses. I don't know if there's any real advice to give on that other than in my case I never tried to get them in the business that they just followed me in one at a time and my last one Alexander he didn't want to do it so he went to Wall Street for a while and then he decided to come in and what I tried to do for him in our art business you got to know how to buy and sell a painting or there's no way you're going to make money and so they had to learn how to be individual dealers on their own so I let them buy and sell what they liked, which is not necessarily exactly what I like. And all I would do is I'd try to protect them from a total disaster, but I would let little disasters happen so they kind of get a feeling that disaster can happen. By now, they luckily, they have established themselves in the trade, which is very important, because if other dealers don't respect you, uh, you're not really a dealer. We'll be back with the rest of my conversation with Bill Aquavella in just a moment. When we talk about reputation being everything, what we're really talking about here is trust. Do people really trust you? In my conversation with Stephen M. R. Covey, the former president and CEO of Franklin Covey Leadership, our entire conversation was about trust and how to cultivate even more of it as a leader. Clearly, you need to be trustworthy. That's the starting point, but you've got to also be trusting. You gotta be willing to extend that trust. But there's a risk to trust and there's a risk not to trust. And I think not trusting is the greater risk in today's world, a collaborative, interdependent world with multiple generations characterized by disruption. And we need change, we need innovation, we need collaboration, and you gotta trust to create that. Go back and listen to my conversation with Stephen M. R. Covey, episode 41, here on How Leaders Lead. You know, you mentioned other dealers. How have you always looked at your competition? and How much did it really affect what you did? I mean, it affected me in that they were very tough competitors, as you might imagine, especially now. Now there are many buyers and not so many paintings of the quality that everybody wants. 
So the competition to get those paintings is very difficult. Are people today more collectors and passionate about art or are they investors? What do you see happening? Well, in, in the early days, I would say that most people were collectors. About 80, 80% of them were collectors and some bought paintings to keep up with the Joneses and others bought them uh, for investment. Today, I think it's the complete opposite. I think 85% of the people buy for investment and very few people buy it for social reasons and a few people buy it because they're actually passionate about art. The money has gotten so big, and I'm talking about the field that we right. deal in, which is the masters of 19th, 20th century and post-war. I mean, they've sold a uh, Warhol portrait of Marilyn Monroe that was, I think, 17 inches or 20 inches, and they got $230 million for it. So, you know, they've turned it into an alternative investment for sure. You know, you've worked with so many renowned leaders and, and famous people, what do you see as, let's say, the top three characteristics of those that you admire the most? It's hard not to be impressed by someone's success and the wealth that they've created. doesn't always make them a great guy or a, uh, a genius. But the best people, I've, I think, are, they get along with other people very well. You know, they know how to handle other personalities and they're very articulate about expressing their ideas and what they want to do. I think it's really pretty easy once you meet a really successful person to say he's really a good CEO or, you know, and others talk a lot, but nothing happens. You probably know better than I do because you, you, you're closer <laughs> to it. I'm asking you that. the question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, how do you think you've evolved, Bill, as a leader over the years? Your own personal leadership style. Well, I don't know that, you know, I'm not leading a lot of people. I mean, I, I have a small business, a family business, but I always get along well with people. I, you know, it's much easier to be friendly with everybody and have an enemy. And I'm, I'm interested in people. I like to know what they do, how they do it. I'm not an envious person about anybody. I, I'm, I'm fascinated by, by their success, how they do it, and I try to learn from them. How do you stay on top of the business trends? Because you've, you've seen a lot change since you got in the business in 61. For my business, I have to travel a lot. We do a lot in Europe. In the old days, the art market was very inefficient. I mean, you'd go, I could go to Paris, buy something, bring it back, profit. I could buy something in Germany, sell it in Italy, profit. I mean, now with the new technology and everything, the market's very efficient. Everybody knows what everything is worth. So now... You have to know what you're doing if you're going to buy and sell things. How much did the internet and digital, how much did that change or impact you and your, your company? It's changed us a lot. It's very much part of our business now. I mean, like, you know, in the old days, you would send a photograph to someone that you want to sell them a painting. And then he'd send you back a letter sometimes or he'd send you back a, a telex in the old days. You know, now... From my iPhone, from this phone right here that I have in my hand, I sell paintings anywhere in the world. I've sold them in China. I've sold them, you know, because the image is so perfect. And then two seconds later, they call you back. But what does that do? With the time changes and everything, you're working twice as hard as you've ever worked. <laughs> if you're going to do everything, you probably know that better than anybody. You know, I would imagine that the availability of high-value works of art would be much greater than today than it was maybe a year or two ago. Is that the case? I mean, there are different kinds of paintings as far as classifications of paintings. You know, contemporary painting, 
where the artist is painting and he gives galleries exhibitions of his work and they sell that. That's called a primary. That's suffered some, I think, in this world quite a bit. If you get a trophy today, what I mean by a trophy, a great Picasso, a great Van Gogh, or a great Monet, or you know, a, a really major picture, you can sell it. Are there more of those trophies available today or not? No, no. It's harder and harder all the time. What's the biggest cause of that, you think? Well, most of them end up in museums eventually. And the people that have bought them in the last 30 years have been extremely successful, wealthy people. So they're in very strong hands and they don't sell. It's very hard to get them. You know, I understand, Bill, you told me the story, and it's a great story about you had a portrait of your father uh, painted. And and Wendy and I, when we were able to see your gallery and you were so kind enough to show us around, we saw the painting. It was really neat. It's a cool thing to do. What's the story behind it? I had a lot of conflicts with my father. Uh, we were very close, but in business, we argued a lot about things. He wanted to do it one way, I wanted to do it another way. And so we used to get in some pretty ugly fights. And at, at one point, you know, we weren't talking and it was a very difficult time. And I'd played golf out of Deepdale with a friend of mine who was much older than I was, Donald Grant. He used to be at Fawn Stock and Company. And he was a wise old man. And we were driving out to the country. And I was telling him about my father. And he said, you know, something. what you ought to really do is have someone paint a portrait of your father. You know, I started thinking about it and I said, you know, this really, this is a good idea. So I went and I told my father, you know, I'd really like to have a portrait done of him. And um, there was an artist called William Draper, who was a portrait painter. And we commissioned a portrait of my father there. And he loved, I mean, we were great pals again. It solved everything <laughs> for the moment. All so, it takes is a little art uh, to bring yeah, people yeah, together, well, huh? Yeah. <laughs> you know, speaking of going to your gallery, I, I was blown away by the gallery and, and the way you presented the art, but you also have like an incredible location. Tell our listeners where your gallery's located and how you found it. Well, we're located at 18 East 79th Street between Madison and 5th. Uh, we're very near the Metropolitan Museum and near the Miracle Mile there of museums. The building was a gallery for Duveen. Duveen was a very big-time dealer in the 19th century and early 20th century. And his gallery had moved there. And Norton Simon was one of the big collectors in the 60s. And he bought Duveen's gallery. And he bought the building, he bought the library, he bought the inventory, everything. He bought lots of time. And he sold off the library and he kept the paintings he wanted. And the building was for sale. So my father at the time said, we ought to buy this building. And I have to tell you, we'll go back to the fact that we didn't really have a lot of money in those days. Anyway, the building cost $550,000. And we made a deal with Simon. We gave him a Renoir, a Fontaine Latour, and I borrowed $175,000 from the Dime Savings Bank. I got a mortgage with a balloon at the end, and we've kept the building ever since. Did you live right across the street from that building? I did. I actually, uh, when I got married, we moved in that building, uh, 21 East 79th. And my mother and father actually moved in at 31 East 79th. So we all lived right across from the from the gallery. And for our listeners out there, this is like the prime real estate in New York. 
You're about a stone's throw away from the museums and Central Park. It's absolutely incredible. Pretty good real estate deal. Maybe you should have gone into real estate, Bill. Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe, you know. What would be a sale that you should have had, in your opinion, that just didn't happen? It was a Mary Lasker. She was a collector in New York, and she had eight Matisses. And I was dealing with her to buy the eight Matisses. I was probably 30 years old at the time. And there was a dealer in London who called me up and said, look, I'm dealing with her. Let me finish dealing with her. And then you you can join us with the pictures. I said, okay. So he ends up buying the pictures, but he never let me in the deal. (laughs) That was a tough deal where I lost. There wasn't much I could do. What'd you learn from that? (laughs) Never to trust that guy. (laughs) You know, speaking of trust, Integrity has to be the number one thing in your it's industry, the biggest, right? And the, your reputation, the reputation is extremely important. It really is. I mean, if you have a good reputation, people believe you and they trust you. And, you know, you, and, and you want to do a good job for them because they come back. They're happy. That's the key to being, I think, successful in the art business. You know, I remember you telling me a story about where a little bit of booze got in the way of a big sale, too. Again, we were in London, and we, there was a dealer there that I did a lot of business with, and we had bought a Matisse together, and there was a Japanese fellow called Mr. Fuji who was interested in buying Impressionist and modern pictures, and so we wanted to sell him this picture. And in London in those days, everybody would have big lunches with wine and everything and uh, have their clients in. So we invited Mr. Fuji in for lunch. And of course, the wine came out and Mr. Fuji enjoyed the wine. He had two friends with him and they were all enjoying the wine. And I was rather concerned because I wanted to sell the picture because again, I, I needed the money. So we finally get downstairs and they brought out a vintage brandy that they thought he should have. So he took a sip of that, and he literally just fell over off the chair. And the two people with him picked him up and said, Mr. Fuji, have very bad cold, and dragged him out, and he, he never bought the picture. <laughs> the learning there? Do not serve alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> you know, when you look at the world, where, where's the hot spot in art these days? I mean, when you look the at United the United States. Still. Still and will be. I think. We've done business in the Middle East, we've done business in Asia, and good business, but still the United States right now is still the, the, the best collectors are here. Bill, when you look back in your career, you know, what did you love most about your business? First of all, I love art. I mean, I love dealing in it, and I love the people I meet. I, I meet great people. When I was a kid, Henry Ford was a pal of mine because you know, we talked about it, but then he, you know, we'd go out at night together. We, we used to have a great time. We'd meet in Paris. We'd be in London. And so we became friends. You could have never done that unless you were in a business where, he, you know, he was interested in it. What did you like least about your business? Uh, there's a lot of monkey business in our business. You know, I mean, they're not, they're not always a lot of good guys. What bits of advice, Bill, would you give to aspiring leaders? I don't think you can be a leader if you don't have ambition. I'll tell you that. I mean, unless you're willing to and believe and are obsessed by what you want to do, in today's world with the competition we have, you're going to have a tough time. I tell my kids that all the time. Say, if you look around and our toughest competitors, 
they're obsessed. They don't quit at five. They don't quit. I mean, they're going all the time. Yeah, so obsession. Obsession, a passion to do it. You've got to have a passion. And you have to have the ambition to want to succeed. What do you think? Well, you know, I think people who are obsessed and passionate and can't wait to go to work on what they do, I think that's a key trait for any successful person. I, yeah. I really believe that. I mean, I think we, you and I love to play golf, and you're a good golfer, and I'm a struggling golfer, okay? But you know what? I, I'm going to work on it until I get better. I, and I'm 81 years old. I'm still <laughs> trying to get better, you know? <laughs> we all are, yeah. <laughs> And no one's going to succeed if they don't want to get better and try and have the ambition to improve. You know, Bill, I understand you you have a phenomenal personal collection. You also said, you know, said earlier you hang on to a lot of paintings and keep them. So I have to ask you this. If you had one painting you'd want to display in your house, what would it be and why? The three painters that I have collected, and others, but in, in majority in my house are Picasso, Matisse, and Miro. Those are three I've always liked, and I bought a lot of those, and I've kept them. And the first painting I bought by Picasso was a Dora Mar of 1938 with a red blouse and a kind of purple hat on and a chair that looks like a Van Gogh chair with yellow chair. It's a cool picture, which I like. That's probably my favorite picture. That's great. Let me close by asking you this, Bill. You know, what's what's your unfinished business? Uh, when you look at your life and where you're headed, what do you want to get done that you haven't done yet? I, I just want to keep improving what I have. And, you know, I want I want to make sure we have good art to sell. I like it. I like doing what I'm doing. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know how much longer I have going, but I'm going to try to go as long as I can. It's fun. Yeah, maybe I can turn you into a collector. Yeah, I don't know. I, I'm thinking, I don't think I can afford it. <laughs> but I will tell you this. I'm glad I pulled your arm, and I'm glad I asked you to do this podcast because I've learned a lot that I didn't know. You obviously are a great leader in your industry, and I appreciate you taking the time to share some of your experiences and insights. It's been fun. Thanks for having me. Can you believe some of Bill's stories? It's pretty incredible that Bill has been able to accomplish all he's accomplished in the heart world. But I think it's important to note, he's been at this for a long time. Building your reputation is all about the long game, even when you have to suffer short-term losses. Think back to that elbow in the Picasso story. When things went south, Bill dealt with the issue immediately. He made a call to the buyer to let him know what had happened, which I can imagine was a very difficult call to make. But not only this, he worked with Steve Wynn to correct his mistake by having the painting restored so they could sell it again at an even higher price. Bill tackled the issue head on to maintain his integrity and reputation with people on both sides of the situation. There's so much to learn here from Bill that can help you develop as a leader. Here's something simple you can apply this week to put some of this into practice. The next time you face a challenge, I want you to face it head on. Make the hard phone call and do the extra work to correct the mistake if that's what's needed. And here's why. You build trust when you address tough situations directly and swiftly. It's the pathway to building a rock solid reputation as a leader. So do you wanna know how leaders lead? What we learned today is that for great leaders, reputation is everything. 
Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of How Leaders Lead, where every Thursday you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I make it a point to give you something simple on each episode that you can apply to your business so that you will become the best leader you can be. I'll see you next week.